Hey everyone, welcome to the 107 podcast and the fourth episode of a special five-part series called Meeting the Moment, Using Data to Reimagine Criminal Justice. I'm your host, Ivan Stegich. This series is a partnership with Recidiviz, a nonprofit organization that is using data-driven tools to help guide change in the criminal justice system. Our mission at 107 is to make things that matter, and given all that is happening in our country right now, this series fits quite nicely with that goal. Each episode of the series features an interview with a recidivist expert exploring different issues related to the criminal justice system. Past episodes have explored why the United States is the global leader in mass incarceration, how government and technology might work more closely together to bring about needed change, and how racism and bias in the data we gather may be a barrier to effective reform. In this episode, we're going to take a close look at human-centered design. That's the idea that putting real human needs at the very center of the process brings about solutions that are more effective and easier to implement. How might human-centered design practices help us improve our criminal justice system? And what are the barriers that we need to overcome to get this done? First, I want to continue with our story of Tara Simmons, a recently elected state legislator in Washington who spent time in prison and who is using that very experience now to try to reform the system and help others break free of the cycle of incarceration. We are leading off each episode of the series with Tara's voice as a reminder that criminal justice is not about numbers. It's about human lives. And it's about hope. Here is Tara Simmons continuing her story, discussing why she decided to run for office. I really ran for office because I know that... um, there is no other formerly incarcerated people uh, in the legislature, at least here in Washington state. We still haven't really found any across the nation either. And I think it's a missing perspective when you're creating policies that are trying to improve either you know behavioral health systems or um, criminal justice systems. I think you know, I bring a missing perspective and I wanted to make sure that I was able to weigh in on these important policy decisions. And also, you know, I did it because my representative who I absolutely love and adore retired, she served in the seat for 16 years and she came to this work after being the lobbyist for the defenders Uh, And so she always cared about criminal justice reform and standing up for the most vulnerable people in our community. And, you know, she asked me to, to carry on her legacy. And, uh, and, and I thought, you know, I I never really thought about running for office. uh, But I figured if I didn't do it, then whoever would like, if you think about the history of America and 
how at one time, you know, there was no women at all serving as elected officials. And then there was no people of color. And then there was no openly LGBTQ people. Formerly incarcerated people uh, are an identity that needs to be, needs to have representation also. And um, we face, you know, so many challenges from early childhood through educational systems, through healthcare systems, uh, and obviously the criminal justice system. But um, our voices are never really centered in these discussions about how we're going to improve systems. So I I did it for a lot of reasons. I also did it because I love my community here uh, and I want to make sure everybody has a first chance so they don't need a second chance later on in life. Can you tell me about the community that you represent in Washington? Yeah, I represent the 23rd Legislative District. It's um, you know, parts of Kitsap County, um, where I grew up and live. And, um, it is, uh, you know, pretty diverse perspectives, uh, across the County. Uh, we care deeply about environmental justice, about healthcare and about social and racial justice. And so, um, you know, I definitely, uh, am looking out for, a lot of different issues now, not just criminal justice, but also um, making sure that our environment is really protected. That's something that's really important to my community here. And, you know, making sure that our education systems are providing equitable uh, access to everybody. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful place to live. And I love my community and the people in it. And you are a civil rights attorney at the Public Defender Association, but you're also the executive director of the Civil Survival Project. So I want to talk a little bit about both of those. So tell me about the Public Defender Association first and what your role there is. Yeah, so the Public Defender Association, um, we don't do any public defense, just so you know, and we are changing the name um, of the organization. But we do a lot of system work to really get at the root of um, behavioral health intersections with the criminal legal system. So that's where, you know, the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Program was first created in 2011, which partners law enforcement and prosecutors with case managers. And instead of arresting people with low-level drug offenses, they actually do divert them on the street to case management um, and skip the whole court process. Um, and so that was founded there. We um, have objects within the Public Defender Association, and I am the director of the Civil Survival Project, which is a project underneath the Public Defender Association. It specifically focuses on reentry. And so um, my work there is about directing a, a project that is led by and for um, formerly incarcerated people. So my my staff is a majority of people with lived experience uh, working on reentry. And so we are doing that through a variety of strategies. We do have a legal aid project where we have lawyers who are um, assisting clients um, on their individual cases uh, around some of these reentry barriers. And then we also have a policy manager and a community organizer who are kind of leading our legislative agenda now uh, because I am a legislator and I'm actually uh, on reduced leave, um, you know, serving. And so they're carrying on the work uh, of the organization in my absence. 
And so, yeah, we do uh, leadership development, grassroots organizing, legislative advocacy, and legal services for people who have been justice involved. We'll hear more from Tara in our next episode. But before we begin to talk about human-centered design and criminal justice, I asked Tara about how she was able to break the cycle in her own life and stay out of prison once she was out. Yeah, for me, it's always been about that I have kids, that I want to make sure that they have a better chance of breaking these cycles than I do. Um, For me, like when I, I'll tell you straight the truth, when I was working in a fast food minimum wage restaurant and they're garnishing my paycheck to pay these court fines and fees, and I ended up having to go homeless because my house was foreclosed on and I couldn't find anybody to rent to me. And I had to actually separate from my kids again while I'm studying for the law school admission test. You know, during that time, I definitely thought, you know, what can I do to make money? Like, so I can get a place to live so I can be with my kids again. And, you know, I thought about like, maybe I could just sell drugs, but not use them. Or maybe I could, you know, and those thoughts alone, though, scared me enough to like motivate me to keep going. And I, you know, had a good support system in recovery, thankfully, that was helping me, uh, you know, gave me a place to stay so I didn't have to actually like sleep outside. I just see how if you don't have like something motivating you to keep fighting through all of these barriers, it's so much easier to just give up and go back to crime and go back to prison because, I mean, you'll be driven to that either through poverty or through lack of hope, lack of connection. And so we need to make sure every single person that comes out has hope, connection, uh, support, emotional support, and also enough financial support to succeed, to, to survive and, and a goal that they're working towards. Tara's story shows just how difficult it can be to break the cycle and escape the criminal justice system. She also reminds us how important it is to have support and hope for a brighter future. So what do we need to do to provide the necessary support and help people stay out of prison? Well, maybe the concept of human-centered design could play a role. To explore this possibility, I'm pleased to welcome Serena Chang, a product manager at Recidiviz. Serena, welcome. Could you give me a little bit about yourself? Uh, tell me tell me who you are and what you're doing and what you've been responsible for recently. Thank you, Yvonne. Um, I'm a product manager right now at Recidiviz which is a technical nonprofit working directly with state partners to help them identify ways to quickly and safely and equitably reduce incarceration. Um, I think I got here sort of by accident. Um, I well, grew up in Missouri, where I currently am, just writing out the pandemic in my parents' basement. Um, when I was young, I really loved making random things out of household items, like cardboard iPod stands or back when those still existed. Um, or duct tape hats for my friends. And so those things are totally impractical, but convinced me that I should probably study engineering. And so I went to the University of California at Berkeley. And it was in college that I really came across human-centered design first. 
pretty much by accident. Um, we have this plaza at Berkeley called Sproul where people walk through it to get to all their classes. And every day there's sort of a, hundreds of student orgs that hand out flyers and you learn very quickly that you're supposed to look very stoic or unbotherable when you walk through that plaza. But I did not learn that yet. And so I got handed a bunch of flyers. One of them was for a human-centered design club on campus. And so I went to that info session, and that's when I first really got intrigued by human-centered design. Um, I, well, the whole premise of the club was working in groups with nonprofits and different organizations on problems that they were trying to solve. And that was really the first time that I had encountered anything that was much more open-ended and project-based rather than just, you know, in intro to artificial intelligence course, you are asked to make Pac-Man eat all of the dots in a depth-first search algorithm, and there's really only one right way to do that. But in the human-centered design, there was a lot more open-endedness, and it was really all just about telling a story rather than the specific piece of technology that we were trying to build. And so because I was always drawn to those open-ended problems and because I ended up being really bad at coding, I became a product manager. And so that's how I ended up where I am today. So Tara quite literally talks about user experience, her user experience. She talks about what the human user experience is when you leave prison and what in her mind should be in the place at the time of coming out of prison. If there's anything anywhere we should be focused on human-centered design, it's probably when we're reintegrating people into society. So you talked about human-centered design. What is human-centered design? Human-centered design, at its core, it's really simple. It's all about just understanding who your user is, talking to them a lot, and understanding what their needs are, and then iterating towards a solution that actually feels like it meets those needs. And the great thing is, is it's not really a skill per se, but it's almost like a process, like a recipe book that you can follow. So you don't need to be a professional chef in order to follow a recipe and make good tasting food, just like you don't need to be a user experience designer or have a trained background in design to actually practice human-centered design. In fact, I'm certainly not a designer, and you can ask any designer at Recidivis, and they will not let me anywhere near their mocks or their design <laughs> files. And so the fact that I'm talking to you now is kind of evidence that you don't need to be. So you mentioned a couple of key ingredients in the human-centered design process. One of them is talking to your user, talking to your human. Uh, the other one is iterating. And it strikes me as though those things might be hard with people who are incarcerated. Yeah, absolutely. I think it really comes down to showing why that's exactly why it's important to actually include people who are directly impacted to the system into the process of creating something for them because they understand the experience better than anyone else. And there's no way that I can sit here having never been incarcerated and be able to tell you exactly what it's like. But I can certainly talk to them and I can certainly involve them as we're creating prototypes and as we're trying to roll out products. And they can tell me this is not going to work or this is exactly what I need. And so that's why it's so important to bring them into the process. So when I think of human-centered design or any kind of user experience design, I usually think about it in terms of the online context, right? Mm -hmm. 
here is a thing that someone wants to buy on an e-commerce site. How do I create the flows so that the thing gets into the cart and gets into the checkout? Yeah, it's got to get into the checkout. Got to get into the checkout. But that's not the only place where you can apply HCD, as we call it. Tell me more about that. So I think there are those really classic examples of shopping and trying to make sure that people actually finish buying something or something like a TurboTax, where previously lots of people weren't able to do their taxes, but TurboTax created something that really gave people the ability to do their taxes on their own. But you're right. It's totally not limited to being online. And in fact, I think some of the non-technical examples are perhaps my favorite so I remember in my interview to be an associate product manager at Google, they asked me to critique an object that was in the room. And there was a box of tissues on the room. And I went on about it for like 15 minutes. So I will spare you most of that today. But at the core of it, you think about a tissue box and the tissues, they exist for people when they're at their very worst states, when you're crying, when you're sick and have to blow your nose, when you have to pick up a dead spider. And so when people reach for a tissue, there's usually something wrong when they reach for a tissue. And the way that the pop-up tissue box is designed makes it so seamless to actually get a tissue that you don't have to think about it. And when you take one out, the next one is already there waiting for you. And I think that's a very conscious design decision that makes all our lives a lot easier in those particular moments. One of my other favorite examples is that experiences also involve human-centered design. And so I remember going to the world of Coca-Cola in Atlanta because, and I loved the experience there because they found such a simple way to pass the time while waiting in line. I don't even remember the actual exhibits. I just remember the experience of waiting in line, where the lines were really long and winding, waiting for one of the exhibits. And a staff member simply just tossed a beach ball into the crowd, and people started passing that beach ball around. So suddenly the line turned into this really fun game where everyone was participating together to keep the beach ball bouncing around, and they totally forgot that they were in line. And I think the best part to that experience is that in order to drive that behavior change from people being annoyed and tired to totally energized and happy, that probably costs the world of Coca-Cola 99 cents at the dollar store. And so there can be really simple things and it's embedded in basically anything that happens because it's human-centered design. So anything that involves humans, it's possible. So you very clearly gave some wonderful examples of when human-centered design work well, when they're not even online. What about when we don't use human-centered design, when things flop? Yeah, tons of things flop all the time. I think when you don't use human-centered design, you can waste people's times, but you can also end up making people's lives worse. So a simple, more benign example is like a microwave, where everyone is just trying to figure out how to heat your food properly. If you've thought about it, it's actually really hard to know exactly what buttons to press to heat your food properly, and you probably get it wrong a lot, and you have to reheat or try again, or it's too hot. And like, what does the popcorn setting even mean on a microwave? <laughs> right. And why, why are popcorn settings on different microwaves so different? Doesn't that defeat the purpose of having a preset setting to begin with? So I think that's one example of just a simple example where human-centered design is not necessarily optimized. Um, I think there's a more dangerous example 
where I read a study recently that showed how female drivers are 47% more likely to be seriously injured in a car crash because the crash test dummies they used when testing airbags and the crash test mechanisms in cars were using dummies the size of an average male. And that's what happens when you don't actually include all of the right people into the design process. You're definitely skewed towards one use case and completely ignoring um, everybody else. Uh, does, in your experience, does the work that you've seen and worked on with Recidivas and Google and others, does government do any human-centered design? Definitely. Human-centered design in government can happen at many scales. And so some examples that are not necessarily recidivist-specific are just thinking about the immigration process in different countries. I had a friend who recently moved to Canada, and she posted on Facebook about her immigration experience and how Canada had noticed that she hadn't used their newcomer settlement services. And they asked in a survey questions about their language fluency, her sense of belonging, and why she didn't use the newcomer settlement services, which I think was a great example of how Canada actually was trying to talk to the people who are using their services or not as a way to actually design the services and improve them. And so more generally, you can really notice the way that different countries do customs and also how streamlined their public services are. So as an arriving traveler in a location, you can feel totally calm or totally frenzied based on the place that you're arriving in. So another example is I lived in Sydney, Australia, when I worked at Google for about a year and a half. And the public transportation system is incredible because everything from buses to trains to trams to ferries, it's all connected to a single payment system. And so this makes it way easier for people to use the public transportation, which is better for the government and it's better for the people. And so I think that's an example of government using human-centered design to try to meet people's needs and improve it. So one of the things that Tara talked about um, is wanting to make sure that everyone has a first chance so they don't need a second chance later on in life. And to me, that means that she's bringing a certain perspective to that human-centered design. She really wants to represent those people in what should be a human-centered design process and perhaps where voices have been missing in the past. What makes it challenging to do human-centered design with government in this context? You've talked about successful things that other governments have done, but what, where are the challenges? Yeah, human-centered design, I think, almost never gets it right on the first try. That's the whole power of iteration. But in government, there's a lot more pressure to actually get it right on the first try because you're affecting people's lives and it's a lot harder to iterate on something once it's in people's hands. And so if you think about the policymaking process, for example, where all of the iteration has to happen up front, there's lots of changes and discussion that happens between when a policy gets introduced and when it actually gets passed. But once a law is passed, it's really hard to make changes because there aren't very many systems in place right now to understand how the policy is being implemented and what impact it's actually having. And so I think that's why it's challenging and why it's also important to have real-time data so that you don't have to wait three years or five years to know if something is working. 
And that's why a lot of our efforts at Recidivis are focused on trying to find ways to help government actually shorten that feedback loop and make it a little bit more real time so that it is possible to iterate even after a change is made. So what you're describing is the inability or the difficulty for government to do fast-based changes that are user-driven. And so there's so government is slow. And I know that government's one of the biggest consumers, if not the biggest consumer of computers and majorly deployed software. I read a stat here that says about 40% of users that you have at Recidivis are still using Internet Explorer 11. Why is that a problem? Yeah, I think it's less the problem that government moves very slowly. I think lots of things actually move very slowly. So, for instance, at Google, when you work on Google search, there are often 20 PMs that work on search and they work on the same web UI and all of them need to approve a change before it gets out the door. And so it ends up slowing things down. When you work in government, you also work in a very interconnected web. In criminal justice, for example, you work in a very interconnected web of corrections, courts, policing, probation, parole, all of whom are responsible for a different part of it and trying to move it in a given direction. And so I think the interconnectedness of it makes it naturally very challenging. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about it being very high stakes because it's important because everything that the government does impacts everybody. So if you work in tech, if you work on a gaming app, you are only impacting the people who care about that particular game and have downloaded your app. But government and criminal justice, it's not an opt-in system like that. It's a very different kind of responsibility, and that's why it needs to be taken very seriously and often why it's harder to iterate once something gets into people's hands. So besides iteration, what are the biggest challenges facing corrections officials today? Yeah, something that people don't think too much about is that corrections is an $80 billion a year industry and that each state corrections leader is fundamentally basically one of 50 people running it. They have hundreds of staff and thousands of people under their care. And so any CEO of any company that has that type of scope would have real-time profit and loss metrics. They would have dashboards that tell them how many people are using the product that they just launched. 